Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Did you know that every discipleship situation, the disciples' theology must inform their discipleship process? Theology and application, they act as guardrails to keep the counseling process moving in the right direction while avoiding the inevitable hazards that inferior theology and deficient application can cause. Maintaining this kind of counseling equilibrium, it has several benefits. For example, if you have sound theology that is informing your discipleship process, it's going to keep you from losing hope. It will also keep you from sinning against the person that you are caring for. Have you ever been trying to motivate a person to change and you end up sinning against them in that process? If you have, that means your theology is not accurately informing your discipleship process. Now, fortunately, the Bible talks a lot about this. It even provides us with a case study to make this point. And I'm going to get to that case study in such, in just a minute. Hello, everybody. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. You can find me. You can find our team at lifeovercoffee.com. Check out our sanctification center. It is a warehouse full of resources. And if you like to read, you can do that. If you want to watch videos, we have hundreds upon hundreds of videos. And if you like listening to audio, well, we have well well over a thousand podcasts too and so there's a lot of information there and it's all free to you i want to talk about this problem of expecting someone to change now maybe you could add to that title by saying expecting someone to change within your timetable that is really the problem that i'm addressing here and that's why we need sound theology if you don't have sound theology that is informing your discipleship practice, you can, for example, set up a tight window for this person to change. And if they don't change within that tight window, well, you can become angry or frustrated or impatient with them. Maybe that would be a good way to begin before I get into this biblical, uh, this case study from the Bible. Have you ever tried to motivate your child? to turn from a destructive behavior only to become frustrated because of his unwillingness to respond to your care humbly? Have you ever found yourself at your wit's end while trying to come alongside your spouse in hopes that change would take place? Have you had similar frustrations with a friend? You have prayed for and you have pleaded with to change, but it did not happen. Well, I have, I would answer yes to every one of those questions. I have failed many times. I, I have drifted from the sound moorings of theology, and I forgot about, well, the point that I'm going to make to you in just a moment, and all of those questions that I just asked are questions from, well, it could be from my personal journey. Now, it is not politically correct for a trained biblical counselor like myself to admit that biblical counseling has built-in liabilities that sets itself up for failure in some counseling situations, but that is true. Now, specifically, I am, I am referring to the professional model of biblical counseling, formalized biblical counseling, where a counselor— 
meets with someone periodically in an official counseling construct to work through a situational difficulty. That is what I am referring to. Now, I am not referring to contextualizing biblical counseling in a greater framework. That greater framework would be the local church, a local church that actively envisions, equips, engages the entire local body in the model and methods of biblical counseling. Now, if that is the local church we're talking about, then I am not referring to a sub-biblical process or the liabilities that it is inherent in the formalized model that I mentioned initially. Biblical counseling in a parachurch practice or biblical counseling even in a local church will have built-in liabilities if the only means of motivating a person to change is the formalized biblical counseling setting conducted by the trained people, people who have been certified, people who have a heart or a burden for biblical counseling. That narrow model of soul care is sub-biblical, and it is a setup, at least, for four possible inferior outcomes. Now, you can add more to this list, but I just want to get it started by, by addressing four specific liabilities that can happen if all you have is a narrow biblical counseling construct of a formalized biblical counselor and a counselee, and that is it. One, the desired change hoped for may not happen during that counseling season. Number two, if the change does occur, or does not occur rather, the biblical counselor may lose faith in the process. I don't know if you've ever become discouraged with that person that you have been trying to help over and over and over again. Well, if you have a tight window of a few counseling sessions that you're working with someone and they are not changing, you could lose faith for the process that you are in. Number three, if change does not take place, the counselee may terminate the process. They have lost faith for the process that they are in. And then number four, if change does happen, there is no way for the person to receive ongoing care among a community that knows him and has the competency to maintain an appropriate level of care that ensures long-term transformation. You see, the Christian life is repentance and ongoing repenting because some of the problems that we have persist long after addressing them. And I've seen this so often in group studies uh, let's say we, you have a three-month discipleship class on a particular topic, 12 weeks, 12 sessions, and as people enter, enter into this class, they are ascending and growing and maturing and embracing what is being taught. And then at the end of three months or 12 sessions, and, and they're, they go out into the wild again, they begin to revert back to those old habits. Well, that is also a picture of some biblical counseling 
because that is a narrow construct that doesn't embrace the full need of an individual who was fallen before they went into biblical counseling, and they will be fallen or imperfect after they leave biblical counseling, making that formalized construct sub-biblical. The Bible has a better way of doing discipleship that is more comprehensive, not only embracing a subset of discipleship, which we call biblical counseling, but the church embraces a full discipleship model, which will provide the care that the individual needs long after he is done with his counseling season. Many Christians are receiving training to be biblical counselors. Praise God. And presumably toward the end of their training, they will begin to engage in the wonderful world of biblical counseling with the expectation of seeing lives change for the glory of God. Undoubtedly, they will see God change many lives through formalized biblical counseling. But to think so narrowly about how and when change happens can make a biblical counselor cynical and even pessimistic about why everyone does not change during counseling. This problem occurs when a counselor has an expectation for transformation to happen during a short season of sessions. The implication is clear. I expect you to change during our prescribed number of counseling sessions. The New Testament does not teach a formalized start-stop date for a specific person, for specific change to happen in a person's life, making biblical counseling, formalized biblical counseling with no connectivity to a greater discipleship model, a sub-biblical process at best. Though change could happen during that counseling window, it is not a New Testament expectation or imperative. Suppose the counselor or the counselee does not discern what I'm laying out here. Suppose the counselor or the counselee does not guard against this false expectation of transformation within a narrow window. In that case, they may embed inherent liabilities in the counseling process that will impede progressive sanctification in a person's life. It's akin to parents pressuring kids to change, which could only happen externally at best. I mean, if you keep pressuring pressuring them to change, they're going to change. For those of you who are listening by audio, I'm I'm using air quotes around the word change. They're going to change behaviorally externally, but helping a person at the heart level depends on something that is transcendent, something outside of our ability. It is God granting the prerequisite repentance for that transformation, something no parent and no counselor can create. Another liability is the counselee expecting change to occur during the counseling window. And so the counselor and the counselee hope for the best, praise God a reasonable perspective, but it is incumbent to provide more than lip service to the higher authority that has to be in this process and his intentions. You see, God changes hearts while providing the empowering grace, the empowering favor that's needed to mature a person into Christ's likeness, but it's not required. 
of him to do so at our behest. And though there is a responsibility on the discipler to counsel well and to disciple, and the disciple to humbly and practically respond to the discipleship that is provided, the timing, the power for change comes from on high. It comes from the Lord. This non-negotiable fact is why disciplers must guard their hearts, why parents must guard their hearts, why friends must guard their hearts against becoming perplexed or even frustrated when they do not see transformation according to their preconceived timetable. If the counselor does not protect his heart, he will lose faith in the change process for the person that he is attempting to hate. I have talked to so many biblical counselors who talk about their counselees in such a hurtful, hateful, angry, cynical, pessimistic way because the counselee is not changing after so long being with them. That is inferior, insufficient theology that is uploaded into a counseling or discipleship model. And if these biblical counselors aren't careful, they will become impatient, possibly rude, harsh, unkind. If the counselor does not adjust, they can fall into the ditch of cynicism, suspicion, even worse. They can start grumbling and gossiping about the unchanging person, which I have heard so often. To expound on these counseling hazards, I want to give you eight excellent diagnostic questions to help you assess your thoughts about those that you want to see change and the process to get there. Now, these are my questions that I ask myself. So I have already been down this road and I I will go down it many other times. As long as I keep caring for people, I need to keep asking myself these questions. And by the way, these questions apply to any soul care provider. Every parent should ask these questions. Every child should ask these questions as they're trying to help their parents to change. Every friend, every small group leader, every husband, every wife. Question number one, have you felt yourself losing hope regarding the possibility of a person changing? Number two, have you become impatient because of the person's lack of responsiveness? Number three, Have you ever spoken harshly to a person because they seemed unresponsive to your appeals? Number four, have you, through your frustration, shared inappropriate details about someone? Number five, have you felt self-righteous, a greater-than-better-than attitude, looking down on someone during the discipleship process? Number six, have you ever sinned against someone while trying to serve them? Number seven, based on your experience with a resistant person, have you ever questioned your ability to to even disciple? And then number eight, have you ever become more focused on your strategies for change than on God's power to bring change to that person? Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, if you answered yes to a lot of them, It's really time to refocus on the only one who can bring authentic change into anyone's life. And after you examine your heart, you may want to review your discipleship model and the methods within that model. It 
it may have some inherent liabilities that need your attention. You may find it beneficial to extend your discipleship model and methods to any context where you want transformation to occur within a specific timetable, not just the counseling office, but also the local church, also the small group within the family dynamic of parents and children. This inherent liability oppressing change within a tight framework can just as accurately be the liability in any discipleship situation. And so the essential theological question to start with is your view of the doctrine of repentance. This is where I would recommend that you start. How do you think about or what is your definition of the doctrine of repentance? More specifically, do you believe that repentance is a gift from God? Let me share with you 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. This is what Paul told his protege, young Timothy. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the devil's snare after being captured by him to do his will. Let me give you my translation or paraphrase of 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 and 26. It sounds something like this. The Lord's discipler must not be quarrelsome. The Lord's discipler must be kind to all people, able to disciple them patiently, enduring evil, resistance, and ingratitude. When the discipler corrects an individual, he does so with gentleness. Who knows? God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the devil's snare after being captured by him to do his will. That is the RLT version. If you believe that repentance is a gift from God, then you know that you cannot conjure, contrive, force, manipulate, or artificially apply it to anyone willy-nilly. We do, not, we do not will repentance into the heart of an individual, regardless of the care context, formalized biblical counseling, the small group, the family dynamic. And so armed with this understanding of repentance being a gift from God, then you are aware that the implication is that God might not grant it according to your expected time frame. He might not grant repentance at all to that person that you love so much that you're caring for, that you're discipling, counseling, praying for, hoping, appealing to. God may never grant repentance to that person. Repentance during a discipleship window context is a timing thing. Will God give the gift of repentance while you are discipling this person? God granted me the gift of repentance while I was an unregenerate 25-year-old. Think about this. If you tried to disciple me, if you tried to help me, maybe that would be a better way to say it. If you tried to help me to change as a rebellious 15-year-old punk kid who just landed in jail you would have potentially been frustrated by my rebellion, my stubbornness, my self-deceived thinking, and, and don't forget my, my anger. It sometimes could be intense. 
But here is the good news. Your watering, when I was a 15-year-old punk kid 10 years ago, your watering and your planting, it would not have been in vain. 10 years after jail, the Lord decided to grant repentance to me. As I look back, the subordination of human effort to God's kind gift of repentance is evident. No matter how much human effort we put forth, it is always subordinate to God's kind gift of repentance. Now, what if we applied these thoughts to a case study that's in the Bible? I'm speaking specifically of the prodigal son. Let's say that the prodigal son comes to you for help. He is angry, he's bitter, he's frustrated, he's living in rebellion. He just demanded and received a lump of money from his dad, and he plans to run away from home. He sees himself as a victim. What is common sense to you should be common sense to him, but it isn't. And even his brother is piling on to the mess. Envy has consumed his brother. And the prodigal has had enough of all of them. He is now sitting in your counseling office. You never met him or his family. His daddy asks you to help him. You agree. How would you counsel him if he stumbled through your door? Well, first, let's take a look at what we know about his story. And so in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, it says there was a man who had two sons. Number 12, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Verse 16. And he was longing to eat the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And then finally, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And of course, from that point forward, he got up, he went to his father, and began to walk out truly genuine, heartfelt repentance. But before we get to the end of the story, in verse 17 here, where he's sitting in your office, is verse 12. After receiving a fat stack of Benjamins, he's hunched in a rebellious stupor, angry at his dad, angry at his brother, angry at life. He blames his family for his miserable circumstances. He's unwilling to see how the problems are consuming him, and how all they began in his wicked heart. As a biblical discipler, your job is to call him to repentance. The facts are clear, and the truth is as obvious as the nose on your face, but he does not repent. Now, according to the Bible story, he does not repent until verse 17. But here we are in verse 12, where he is sitting before you like me as a 15-year-old kid sitting before you, but it will not be 10 years. It'll be 10 years before I repent. And 
It could be many days and many years before the prodigal son repents as well. Now, the missing piece of information we do not have is how much time transpired from when he received his money in verse 12 and landed in the hog lot in verse 17. We don't know that time frame. Our best guess is that it was a very long time. He received his money. He spent it on reckless living. A famine came into the land. He went and found a job. He ended up in the hog lot. He came to his senses. I mean, it probably took several months to whittle down his fat stack and, and for a famine to come upon the land. It could have been a year or more. And though he comes to you in verse 12, let's say that it is one year before he comes to his senses, 12 months before he begins walking out repentance of his sins. That is a long time to be counseling someone in a formalized professional sense of biblical counseling. In most cases, the counseling will stall or it may terminate. If a person shows no sign of changing after a short season of meetings, the best thing the counselor can do is water and plant and just wait and pray for God to change the rebel's heart. Repentance is a mystery only adequately understood in the mind of God. We cannot will it, no matter how adept we are at discipling or caring for people. If the counselor expects to bring the person to a penitent, fruitful, and reconciling conclusion, the counselor would be disappointed. It would not have happened in my life for 10 years. As I look in the rearview mirror, I, I can say that in an absolute sense. It, it did not happen in the prodigal's life for an extended period of time. You, I would imagine that that time was outside of any normal formalized counseling window. The counselor could have talked to the prodigal until he was blue in the face, but he would not change. It was never God's will for the prodigal to change until verse 17. The Lord has brought more than one person into my life who came to me months and even years after our initial meetings to thank me for investing in their lives. There's something to learn from that. In those situations, the person was sorrowful for how stubborn and ornery they were during our time together. And unfortunately, in some of those situations, I became impatient, harsh, unkind, frustrated with the person because of their resistance to change during our expected time frame together. My immature thinking tempted me to put too much hope into the model, too much hope in the method, rather than resting in God's mysterious will. I was too self-reliant in my ability to disciple. Other times I cared, I cared more for them than they cared for themselves, and you will find that. Parents will find that often. You care so much for them, or more for them than they care for themselves that you end up over-caring and pressuring the issue, even manipulating, maybe gaslighting them toward change. It was not unusual in some of those situations where I was counseling where my fear fed my advice because I wanted to see them change. I was afraid that they would not change. And, of course, that does feel more like manipulation on the counselee's end. Rather than resting and trusting and hoping for God to change hearts, I expected my training, my knowledge. 
to make the difference. We have to learn this essential discipleship tip. God grants repentance. And you can tell if you're over-caring, if you're pressing too hard, because you will be impatient, frustrated, angry, harsh, rude, unkind. Maybe you'll even start gossiping, slandering, criticizing, becoming cynical and pessimistic. All of those words make up a word cloud that can come out of our hearts and Hopefully God would help us to see some of those words, which would be our cue and our clue to recognize that we have, we've gone way beyond watering and planting. We are not resting. We're also trying to grant repentance. We're trying to manipulate the situation, and it's exasperating them, and we are exasperated too. I've titled this A Problem with Expecting Someone to Change. You can read, you can watch, and listen or listen uh, to everything that I just shared with you. But before I wrap up, I do want to ask you a few questions that I I trust will uh, provoke you in the most biblical and, and great ways to think more about this so that you can experience maybe God would grant repentance to you in whatever way that you need to repent by overcaring or pressing people uh, too hard to change. Question number one, will you, talk, will you talk about a friend or a family member that you manipulated because you are not resting in God's mysterious will for them? And then as you think about this, what should you have done differently? And then maybe a good follow-up, is there something you need to do now to make amends for botching up the discipleship time with them? And if there is, would you go and do that? Question number two, why is it easier to fall into these traps with those that we love while being more at rest with those that we don't know as well? And you'll find that will be true in most cases. The people that we invest the most in, that's part of the answer to the question I just asked you, that we invest so much time in them that we can end up over-caring for them. And so the follow-up is, how will you fortify your heart so that you don't push a loved one too hard? Question number three. When you think about the gift of repentance, what goes through your mind about those that you want to see changed today? What one thing will you do to change yourself so you can avoid the relational trap of over-caring? And then number four, is there someone in your life who is not changing? How are you responding to them? Do you need to go to them and repent of impatience, despair, frustration, or maybe something else? If you do, will you go to them today? And then finally, number five, Would you spend some time talking about the liability of parachurch biblical counseling or a church counseling practice that does not engage the entire body while extending the time frame for change? What would you do if you had the authority, the the ability, the know-how to develop a, a counseling worldview and practice at your local church? I've titled this A Problem with Expecting Someone to change. We do have a training program uh, at lifeovercoffee.com. It is our mastermind program. It can be a two to three year training program where we teach people how to disciple others. There are three core elements of that 
uh, program is that theology, that is foundational, that we have a sound theology. And then psychology, psychology from a biblical perspective, psyche, logos, psyche for soul, logos, the study of. The Bible teaches us how to study the soul, so therefore pure psychology is what the Bible teaches about the soul. So we teach sound theology, sound psychology, and then the application, the practicum aspect. And those are the three core components, but there are a lot, there's a lot to it and a lot of interaction and a lot of opportunity. And it's self-paced. It's all online. You never have to travel anywhere. And so you can do the mastermind program in the coffee shop. You can do it in your home. You can do it wherever you wish. All you need is access to the internet. And so if you're interested in getting some training in biblical counseling, we would love to be your supervisors, mentors. We'd love to train you. Uh, we'd love to walk alongside you as you begin to gather these ideas, collate them, and put them into practice. You can learn about our mastermind program at lifeovercoffee.com. Please check out all the other resources, perhaps what you would like to do here is to print off this article. There's a print button at the bottom of all of our articles. You can print it in a PDF. You can make copies, pass it out to your small group. Maybe you could disciple someone just using this article and then the questions that I have at the end. And so take advantage of our resources. If we can serve you, please let us know. God bless. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.